Thanks for choosing this BJSM podcast, and I'm with Margot Mountjoy. She's a Canadian sports physician. She hails from McMaster, which is the university renowned for pioneering evidence-based medicine and problem-based learning. She's part of the FINA Bureau, which involves taking care of elite athletes. She herself was an international synchronized swimmer, and now she works with the IOC and the Games Group. Margot, welcome to the podcast. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. And we're going to talk about the problem. I'm a clinician and I think this athlete looks too thin or the athlete could be coming with medical problems such as recurrent stress fractures. Is that something that you think is an important clinical presentation? That certainly is an important clinical presentation. The athlete that's too thin may have uh, significant health as well as performance problems. It could be that the athlete has an eating disorder disorder or disordered eating. It could be that their body composition is just too low and they have something called energy deficiency or low energy availability. So these athletes have, uh, are at greater risk of having both health and performance consequences. You also mentioned that it could be an athlete with a stress fracture. And as we clinicians know, there are many causes of stress fracture, but one of which, of course, is the energy deficiency or REDS, Relative Energy Deficiency Syndrome in sport. Okay, before we go on, the idea of disordered eating and eating disorders has always seemed to be wacky to me. Um, do you think they're great terms? Well, I'm not the American Psychiatric Association that coined the terms, but certainly they do exist in sport, and it is a real concern in sport. We know the prevalence of both challenges from um, restricted intake or bulimia where you have increased intake followed by vomiting are real and significant in both male and female athletes. And these can be from their psychopathology that brought into sport, or they can also be caused by pressures within sport, in particular performance sports where you're required a certain body composition, in judge sports where there's a certain look or aesthetic that you're looking for, and also for the weight-dependent sports where, um, say, it's in ski jumping or rowing where your weight in the boat or on the ski slows your pace. And finally, in the weight class categories, where um, such as judo or wrestling, where you're trying to make a certain weight. So these, these things inherent to sport can also cause or make worse these uh, syndromes. But the terms themselves, eating disorder and disordered eating, it seems like to a regular person they could seem quite similar. It's all on a spectrum and a continuation where um, the eating disorders are more severe and the disordered eating is uh, behaviours that eventually, if not treated properly, will become an eating disorder. Okay, so tell us what you suggest we do when an athlete comes in and we're concerned about insufficient eating or being thin. So for that athlete, it's really worth identifying, sitting down and talking to them. Because we need to find out whether this is a health issue um, with the disordered eating or eating disorder, and if they don't have any body image or disordered eating or eating disorder, you need to investigate what their energy balance is. If you can define the, that parameter, then you can get at what the root cause is for all the physiological and psychological sequelae. Like all clinicians, we start off with a history, and you can, do, you can ask specific questions to assess whether they're at eating disorder or disordered eating risk. You can refer in the BGSM online at the moment and in the hard copy and press something called the REDS CAT, which stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport Clinical Assessment Tool. And this is a PDF that you can download and use in your clinic. 
And what this uh, tool does is it affords you first some information on what is REDS, or Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, and then it walks you through the health and performance implications, and then into screening. So in the screening part, you can find a guideline on how to identify who's at risk and how, you, how do you manage this athlete at risk. So in particular, when you're risk classifying the athlete, you would classify them according to the criteria into either one of three categories. Uh, the, the high risk category are the more severe, obviously ill athletes where participation in sport would actually be a detriment to their health and also perhaps uh, detrimental to the team. Now, those criteria include anorexia nervosa or other serious eating disorders, the serious medical or psychological um, physiological conditions related to low energy availability, uh, such as bradycardia or cardiac arrhythmias, electrolyte disturbances. Others include use of extreme weight loss techniques that may lead to hemodynamic uh, significant instability from dehydration or other life-threatening conditions. So this, this red light group are really the ill, seriously ill group, and the red light really means stop. That means stop and do not let this athlete train or participate. They need medical treatment for their health and safety. So this is a red flag stop group. The second group is the moderate risk or the yellow light group. And these are the athletes that will have signs or symptoms of the um, relative energy deficiency. And this might include um, prolonged abnormal low percent body fat, um, decreases in growth and development in the adolescent, uh, substantial weight loss, um, more than 5% or 10% body mass in a month, abnormal menstrual cycle, uh, reduced bone mineral density, history of one or more stress fractures, um, athletes with psychological or physiological complications due to the energy uh, um, deficiency, and as well, um, disordered eating behaviors that negatively affect their team members. So this group of athletes in the yellow uh, zone, they are the caution. They're the ones that you should stop and think about and treat, but they can train as long as they're following their treatment plan and that they're under medical supervision. So this is the caution group. The third group are the athletes that fit into the low risk or the green light zone, and we hope that all our athletes are there. And they're the ones that have appropriate physique. They do not have any unhealthy behaviors. They're basically healthy. They have good eating habits. They have a healthy functioning endocrine system. Their bones are healthy. These are all the athletes we want to have in our team. So these green light um, uh, athletes in this risk actually have full participation with no restrictions, both in training and in competition. Most clinicians will see mainly people in the yellow as far as disease goes and green, and the red is pretty rare, right? The red is pretty rare, thankfully. We have that red light um, category so that we pay attention to those. We have, with this framework, it gives you the ability to have the right to say stop, and this tool can actually help you when you're discussing these athletes with uh, the coach or the sport administration and teams. You use this, um, this framework to say, this athlete fits here and we must stop them from dangerous physical activity.
You mentioned in your assessment of the athlete, there can be a bunch of other symptoms and what are some of the systems that might be affected? There are many uh, systems affected by relative energy deficiency. The original female athlete triad particularly um, pointed to the endocrine system with menstrual dysfunction as well as um, abnormal bone health. We do now know in the literature that relative energy deficiency affects many more um, body systems, including the immunological system, cardiovascular, gastrointestinal, hematological, metabolic, endocrine, and psychological health. Within particular the cardiovascular system, there can be abnormal lipid metabolism or endothelial dysfunction. The psychological one is actually quite unique because it is the only one where the psychological problems can cause the energy deficiency, but as well the energy deficiency can cause psychological problems such as decreased concentration, irritability, depression, and worsening of anxiety. Other ones include in the hematological system, you can have anemia or other blood problems uh, caused by nutrient deficiency and low intake. So if we take our listener to the second page of the Red S cat, after the traffic lights, they'll see that there's some guidance for management. Tell us about that. In particular, what the um, relative energy deficiency clinical assessment tool does is show you next the steps of returning your athlete to play. So it's a return to play guide as well. So using the Creighton steps for return to play, step one is evaluating the health status of the athlete. So looking at the medical factors in particular, you're going to look at the criteria that you did in the original red, yellow, and green light. What is their health? Do they fit into the red, yellow, or green category? What is their weight? What is their hematological function? What is their endocrine function? The same medical assessment that you would have done in the beginning. Step two are the sport risk modifiers. And this is very important in particular with relative energy deficiency athletes. Are they in a weight sensitive sport or a leanness sport where they're at particularly high risk for problems in the future? Are they, do they have a supportive team around them in terms of an individual versus a team sport? And what's their level? Are they elite or recreational? And how important is an early return to sport? So these are the modifiers that you you go through when evaluating the athlete. And of course, step three, and these are decision modifiers, are looking at, at the things that we're familiar with. What time in the season is it? What are the pressures both from the athlete and external pressures, conflict of interest or fear litigation? And in particular, these athletes are um, subject to these kinds of pressures. So once you've gone through these risk, um, sorry, once you've gone through these return to play uh, modifying criteria, then you apply again the red, yellow, and green light model. So following uh, your assessment of the return to play uh, three steps from Creighton, then you can reapply the return to play model. And in particular, if your athlete is still quite unwell and in the red light zone, then that athlete is still not allowed to compete or to train, and use of the written contract is recommended. If your, if your athlete is categorized into the moderate risk or the yellow light zone, then this athlete can continue to train as long as they're following the treatment plan and showing some progression, and they can be cleared to compete if they're under supervision. 
and again, the athlete with uh, no health problems and assuming that your athlete's improved and is healthy, then they can have no restrictions to their uh, training or competition with full sport participation. And listeners will be able to track these papers that you refer to in BJSM. Your original paper is in the April 2014 issue, and it's number seven from memory. And we'll put the links at the bottom of the podcast as well. And the Creighton Return to Play criteria you're referring to is a classic paper in clinical journal of sport medicine talking about um, ways to consider return to play and recommend that to all our listeners. So let's wrap this up with a clinical scenario and share with us the sort of patient that will be common in a practice and how the clinician can deal with that and apply the Red S CAT in this way. Uh, thank you. It's always good to use a practical um, uh, case, case example to illustrate the, the model. So let's take for an example a cross-country skier. And uh, in particular, this athlete um, was having troubles with anorexia, nervosa. She was, had significant um, weight loss and she, her, her body composition was quite low. She was amenorrheic, and she presented to the clinic actually with a stress fracture in her foot. So it wasn't actually, she didn't come in and say, I have um, uh, an eating disorder. She came in and said, I have you know, pain in my foot. And when you examined her and, and, uh, and um, evaluated her health status, you found that she did have a stress fracture, and eventually through your clinical assessment, found out that she was uh, having difficulties with anorexia and had quite significant weight loss. When you evaluated her more closely, you saw that um, she had significant um, electrolyte disturbances and she was, uh, was um, suffering from significant vomiting as a result of her anorexia. She actually um, had, when you look further into her history, significant for a, a prolonged period of time and was not getting better. In fact, she would fall into this red light zone and she would be restricted from sport for a period of time while she received treatment. So this is an athlete that responds very well to the relative energy deficiency treatment contract, which is on the third page of the um, clinical assessment tool. And with that, you contract, we contracted with her to um, see the physician at regular intervals, the psychotherapist. She actually would probably need to have a psychiatrist to support her as well. And she was seeing a nutritionist to support her nutrition. Now, with this multidisciplinary team and the treatment as, as in the original paper would, will give you, she was seen at rel relative intervals. And at this particular patient was seen at a monthly interval by the whole team. Upon reassessment, um, she was improving over the next six months and was allowed to return to play when she was classified well enough and stable in the yellow zone or moderate risk range. So she still had some of the signs and symptoms, but she was stable enough to return back to training under supervised care. And then over time, she received more treatment and regular follow-up using the contract and was able to return to full sport participation and competition. So this is an example of how you can use this model to guide your um, not only treatment but screening risk assessment as well as return to play and level of sport activity. And you mentioned screening and risk assessment and in high risk sports the clinicians are working with these athletes like in ballet, is it something you would suggest be done with the whole team or is there pre-season prevention or let's look at that issue briefly. Well, there's many, many ways you can do the screening. And I think in particular, the um, pre-season health evaluation is really important um, because that's when you can pick up the subtle changes that maybe you want to 
catch before they develop a stress fracture. So having your athletes seen at a period of time when it's not in the middle of season is a really key idea. Now, the second time you can do that is if the athlete just presents um, with one of the signs or symptoms, and that should twig you if you're thinking about this. If they present with a bone problem or some other health problem, need to think further and deeper about all the other parameters and look for them because you'd be surprised you might find them. Should you screen the whole team? I think that's on a case-by-case -case basis. So if you're working with, say, a higher-risk team like synchronized swimming or ballet dancers, you might want to be looking at the entire group. If you're dealing with a sport that's slightly lower risk, then you might not want to do the entire group, but target those who you feel are at particular risk for other reasons. People tend to associate this with women, but um, I know that it, it does exist in men. Tell us more. There is now enough evidence to support the fact that we should also look at the male athlete because they also can suffer from the effects of relative energy deficiency. Males do have problems with eating disorders and disordered eating in sport. They also have um, bone abnormalities. They can suffer from many of the same physiological problems that I mentioned earlier in, in this uh, podcast. So please don't forget the male athlete. There is evidence that they too have the same problems and we should be addressing their health concerns equally as we do with the female athlete. Now, just before I let you go, you've also produced material on sexual harassment in sport. Um, tell our listeners briefly how to get to that and we might take that up as a whole different topic for a podcast. Uh, thank you very much. Yes, another area of my um, interest and activity is sexual harassment, abuse in sport. Uh, the IOC published in 2008 um, a consensus statement on this topic, and in 2015 we'll be doing an update of this topic where we'll be addressing harassment, abuse, and broadening the scope beyond just sexual uh, to other forms of harassment, abuse, including psychological abuse, physical abuse, um, neglect, and other other unfortunate factors that happen in sports. So stay tuned. We will be producing that next year. And you can find that on the ISC website and also a link in the BJSM education panel. So thanks for joining this podcast and uh, my thanks to Margot Mountjoy. Have a very active day and give us your tips on how to make BJSM better. 